In the Green Room with Michelle Truman, brought to you by SOS Global Express. Our guest today in the Green Room was previously head of partnerships at GameStop, where he initiated collaborations with sports powerhouses Team Envy and Optic Gaming, plus managed naming rights for the Complexity Gaming Headquarters. He has presented at TEDx and is an active speaker on youth marketing and gaming. He sits on the advisory board for Dallas Influencers in Sports and Entertainment, serves as the board president for Esports Trade Association, and currently director of business development for esports at PRG. Welcome, John Davison. Thank you for having me. John, not a lot of people out there so far really, really know your story. They know you're now at PRG, but they don't know your story. You weren't always in esports and gaming. Tell me about your skateboarding. Yeah, you know, skateboarding, I guess you could say, is really uh, my first love. I skated a little bit in second grade, pushed around a little bit, ended up finding a skateboard. Uh, in my closet when I was 11 years old. And I really just kind of had a knack for it. You know, I, I started skating. My my brother started filming me and I, I got sponsored when I was 14 years old. Nowadays, a lot of people are sponsored, but back then nobody really was sponsored. Nobody really knew anybody was sponsored. And so it was it was an interesting time. It was really cool figuring out sponsorship with companies who hadn't sponsored somebody before, like a local skate shop, and then doing skate demos on the weekends, skating contests, things like that. I was very fortunate with my past and had the opportunity uh, shortly after high school to join a skateboard company in Orlando, Florida. I grew up, I should say, I grew up in small town in Central California, Reedley, California. And so I, I bought a one-way ticket out to Orlando. Um, they said, you should come out here. And I was like, let's do it. I'm tired of school. <laughs> I wasn't doing very well in my classes. My mom kind of pushed me out the door. She said, if you're getting these grades, why are you wasting your time? Go skate. So yeah, I bought a one-way ticket to Orlando. It was a crazy thing looking back that, you know, this was right before social media really took hold. So right before MySpace started, this was like 2004, I believe, 2003, 2004. And so I was flying out to Orlando and I talked to the, the owner of the, the team all the time on the phone, but I had literally never seen a picture of him. So I called him right before I got on the plane and they said, hey, how am I going to know who you are? And he's like, I'm the one wearing our company t-shirt. <laughs> so it's a little bit trippy to look back and think, you know, I had never seen the guy who I was flying across the country to move in with. You know, the I expected uh, that to go far more successfully than it did. Um, the company actually split about three weeks before I was moving out there. Before I moved out there, they were doing all these demos, they were doing all these contests, a lot of filming with the whole team together, and the two owners split. I hate to be the type of guy who says he's going to do something that doesn't do it. <laughs> I was like, there's no chance that, you know, I'm going to have, I have already told all my friends from my small town that I'm going going to Orlando and I don't go. So I was like, I'm going anyway. I flew out there, had limited success, you could say, had a bunch of crappy jobs we can talk about. I was there for just about a year and then I moved to San Francisco, back across the country again, pursuing skateboarding, having to work on the side. And then I got on a tour for six months straight. So I sold everything I had. I flew to Boise, Idaho, where the tour started. I said, okay, let's do it. And so for six months, it was vans, hotels, crowds, autograph signings, dinner, skate all night wake up at noon, repeat it again. I ended up breaking my ankle at the end of that tour really badly, had surgery on it and everything, and had to get in a, a situation where I, I joined a temp agency, and that helped open my eyes to the business world, and that and working in an office could be a positive experience. But I've, you know, I, I still receive free skateboards from a company 21 years later after getting sponsored, and I still am fortunate to skate at a high level. I've had opportunities to be featured on the barracks, 
the, the most visited skateboarding website in the world. I've had opportunities to skate street league skate courses and do a lot of things that I'm very thankful for. And I can tell you when I was 14 and I first walked into that skate shop with my sponsor me video, I did not expect to have had as many adventures and opportunities through skateboarding as I have. So it's been fun. So um, how old were you? I mean, was this like your early 20s or these your teens? What was the period of time that this spent? Uh, I was 20 to age 24 was when I was really pursuing it after school. I was pursuing it heavily, you know, starting at age 14. But as far as when I moved out of the house and I was moving, driving across the country all the time and touring, that was primarily age 20 to 24. It wasn't a straight path into your passion, into your career passion. So during this, <laughs> Not at all. We, we, we kind of talked about the 10th agency, which I'm sure has many stories. But what was many, the yeah. worst job that you had as you're going through this early part of your life? Oh, man, there's a lot of competition for that. Um, <laughs> I've um, I've definitely uh, had quite a grind over the years. I'll go ahead and give you three options. We'll let the fans decide <laughs> what, what sounds most brutal. <laughs> so let's see. When I first moved to Orlando, I needed to get a job, provided health benefits, so in case I broke my ankle or something, but I had no experience. So, you know, it's hard to find those jobs. And, you know, looking through the classifieds, uh, the one that I came across, I was able to, to land, turned out to be telemarketing for Westgate Resort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, look up a documentary called The Queen of Versailles. And The Queen of Versailles is a story about how the biggest mansion in America was being built and the company went bankrupt during it being built. It's a it's a fascinating story. And that just happens to be the Westgate, who owned Westgate Resort. Uh, <laughs> that's a side note for some, you know, some entertainment during quarantine. But boy, th- so this so I was calling people. I was offering a discounted vacation in exchange for a timeshare tour. We had on automatic. We had headsets on. We're on an automatic dialer, and what that means is you're not dialing the phone or clicking a button to get into a call. It means when you end a call, a call has already started, and the person on the other line is already pissed off at you because they don't. They're saying hello three times. <laughs> Makes it a little harder to to sell. Um, the other thing was we had to make the sale on that call. People could not call you back. So you had, you know, making a call saying, Michelle, congratulations. This is John from Westgate. I just wanted to congratulate you and reach out. You have won a three-day, two-night stay in Orlando, Florida for just 99, not, not you know, not counting airfare. You just wanted to confirm some things with you and get your credit card to take advantage of that. <laughs> if you're wondering how many times I had to say that every single day, if you're doing a good job, we're making 200 calls a day and you were making two sales. So it was a 1% yeah. success rate and it was, it was super hard. So that's one, that's one candidate for worst job. The second one, I will say would be cell phone sales in the Florida mall. Um, after leaving telemarketing, I went to work for a, a cell phone company and the Florida mall is at least at the time, I don't know if it still is, but at the time it was the most visited mall in America. Like, for, you know, everybody's going to Orlando on vacation, they're going to the Florida Mall. Well, guess where and when nobody buys a cell phone? <laughs> In the mall on vacation. <laughs> Apparently, that is not when you are deciding to re-up your cell phone plan or to get a new phone. It's like, hey, you want a 407 number? Uh, no, I live in Idaho, you know? I mean, it's a tough sell. And then the third option I'll give you, which was a shorter time, but my, w- this might be the winner is selling Kirby vacuums door to door. 
<laughs> so I had um, the the way I got in that situation. I was I, I was going to go on the six month long skateboarding tour, and I had I quit my job because I you know I had to a skateboarding trip to Mexico. So I my boss wouldn't let me go, so I quit as you do when you're 21 years old. So I came back and I had five weeks before my six month skateboarding tour, and so I had to make money doing that. But I also wanted to be respectful of whoever hired me, and I you know I didn't want them to spend the time and the energy and the the money to hire me, train me, and then I would just peace out, right? So I was like, okay, well, what's a job that I could get that'll bring an income, but they don't care if I leave? <laughs> sure enough, Kirby vacuum. Now, I will tell you this. If I could afford a Kirby, I'd buy one because it is a, a superior machine. The way that they sell them, they're so expensive that it's really seen as believing. And if you see a $1,900 vacuum on a shelf at a store, there's probably a lot of options that look great that are a lot cheaper than that, right? So what you got to do is you have to work your way into the house. So I'm knocking on doors and saying, hey, need a room vacuum? You know, I'd love to show you how this works. That was a very interesting experience to do that. But there's also kind of a, a little bit of a fun showmanship. Michelle, have you ever um, had a, a Kirby vacuum demo by chance? <laughs> no, no, I haven't. Okay. Fun thing. Like I said, superior machine. The thing that a Kirby does, it pulls up all the dirt from under the carpet, which is unique to vacuum. I learned a lot about vacuums, by the way. Um, <laughs> no matter what vacuum you have, a Kirby will pick up dirt that the other vacuum has. It. And so they give you this vacuum and they give you all these little white filters that you put into this little area of the vacuum. And then you go zoom and boy, that white filter turns black really quick. And then you put it down on the edge of the room, right? On the edge of the carpet. And then you do another one. So as you're vacuuming this person's house, you are showing them the filth that's coming out of their carpet. And... <laughs> And there's one thing that we would do because what you also have to do from the sales perspective is you need to create dissatisfaction with their current vacuum, right? You can't just say hey, your carpet's dirty and the, the guy's like, well, I never vacuum it anyway. Thanks for doing it for free. You got to show them that their current vacuum doesn't work, even though it still turns on. So we do this thing and I'd say, um, Michelle, I'd like to share something with you because what I'm seeing with all of this dirt coming out of your carpet is that I'm wondering if your vacuum is working. And you'd be like, well, of course my vacuum's working. And say, okay, okay. Well, can you bring it out? And so you go bring, bring out your vacuum and say, do you happen to have any baking soda and any salt? You're like, okay, I don't know why you need it, but here you go. What I would do is you just dump all of this baking soda and salt into the carpet. And while I do that, I'd be explaining, you know, Michelle, the baking soda signifies uh, the lighter dirt, the dust. And then the salt, what the salt signifies or represents is the bigger pieces of dirt that are actually little rocks with up to seven cutting edges, which cut your carpet away. And as I'm dumping all this crap into your carpet, right? And then I take your vacuum and I go over the spot where I dumped all that white baking soda and salt in. And I say, how many times do you want me to go over it? 50 times, 100 times, and you just go over it like literally like 100 times. And then you say, oh, you, you, that probably got it all up, right? And then you take these black pads that you have and you put it in your Kirby and you go over it one time, vroom, that white pad, it just pulls up all that baking soda and salt every single time, you know, you say something like, so Michelle, about your vacuum, would you say that a vacuum is broken when it doesn't turn on or when it doesn't pick up the dirt anymore? <laughs> and if you're, you really got to read the room, but if you, if you can read the person and you feel like they'll let you the best move where you would just know this person was going to buy it and you say, 
say, okay, well, since your vacuum is broken, where does the trash go? And you pick their vacuum up and you put it outside. <laughs> and if, you, if they let you do that, you know you're selling that machine. But, um, <laughs> but that job was a grind. It was um, mandatory to work six days a week and they encouraged you to work seven. You'd come in at nine and you would get home at midnight. I mean, you oh, would, wow. yeah, they would drive two hours away to um, to get to new houses and, you know, new areas. But the, the, the tough thing for me, I mean, it was a grind and people make a lot of money doing that stuff, like the people who can really do it. But I'm not somebody who is purely financially motivated. In fact, it's not even really close to one of my top things. Like, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I want to make a comfortable living, but I can't be one of those guys who's just like, I'm going to work myself to death till I'm 40 and then I'm going to retire and I'm going to be a, make millions. I just I need a little more in my life than to do that. <laughs> but those are the three. Those are the three. <laughs> Telemarketing, cell phone sales, and Kirby backing. So, so I, I now really understand how you became an influencer. You, you're just used to selling in life. <laughs> so you've been hailed as an influencer. You know, Liz, sounds like you've had a lot of experience in trying to influence people from your career. Yeah, you know, um, I've definitely been trying to sell people stuff for a long time. But in my skateboarding career, age 14 and on after that, I've experienced being an ambassador for a brand and a number of brands. And I really loved it. I always just kind of naturally understood that companies sponsored me because they made more money if they gave me free stuff or they paid me than if they didn't. You know, I didn't <laughs> I didn't just believe that I was cool enough to get free stuff, <laughs> which is sometimes <laughs> a pitfall for young influencers or young brand ambassadors. They forget, you know, that it's not about <laughs> it's about the company and about the fans. Yeah, I've been fortunate to, you know, as I look back see how these experiences groomed me, helped me understand how to reach other people, um, but also how to champion whether it's a company or or an industry like esports. As an influencer, you know, you, you, everything you do, positive or negative, is out there for everybody to judge and see what's the worst mistake you ever made as an influencer. <laughs> oh, man. That's a really good question. As I think back, I think I've, I've been pretty good. I haven't had anything that's really been a big, oh, I can't believe you posted this online or you said this, but I will tell you my first keynote experience. <laughs> and this was almost really bad, but I caught myself. I had the opportunity to for, do my first keynote and I was just so nervous, you know, and I, I was just like, oh my God, what if I forget what I'm going to say? And at this particular event, they didn't have a confidence monitor. Confidence monitor, for people who don't know, it's a monitor in front of you at the front of the stage facing the speaker so that they can see the next slide. Or if they have notes on there, they can, it aids the speaker while they're on stage because you've got a lot going on in your head. So they didn't have one when I showed up. Of course, it's a self-fulfilled prophecy, right? You're going to, if you're afraid, you're going to forget, you're going to forget. The funny thing was that people who were speaking before me, I was the last speaker of the day, and people who were speaking before me were having issues with the controller that was switching the slide, and it kept messing up throughout the day. And so I get on stage, and I introduce the topic, and I literally go blank, completely blank. I had no idea what I was supposed to say, and I was panicking. And I very subtly and quickly hit the controller behind my back and it flipped the slide forward a couple slides and I looked up at it and I said, oh man, that controller is going crazy again. And I, when I saw the content, it reminded me and I was able to get back on track and deliver the keynote. <laughs> well, let's jump to your current position here at PRG. You guys are yeah. now you know, leaders in production of the esports events as a whole. How do you talk a guy who's never gamed into believing you that it's quote unquote a sport? Well, I'll tell you, I don't think it really 
only necessary to convince them that it's a sport. What is imperative that you convince them of is that it is entertainment, that it is engaging, and that it is where youth are participating, interacting, and where their eyes are. Fortunately, because I want to say the last year, I would say I'm getting a lot fewer questions because people see it everywhere and they kind of get it. But I actually think that the biggest struggle with the esports pitch is the fact that it's called esports. And if I were to name it, if it was up to me, I would call it competitive gaming. And the reason is, I think when you say the word esports, first of all, it, it just kind of sounds weird, right? It's like, what's that word? You said a sport? Esports? Like, what was that? So <laughs> initially, you're confused. Secondly, when you're like, yeah, esports, you immediately are entering into a debate on whether it's a sport or not. And whether it's a sport or not def depends on your definition of sport, right? Like, if your definition of sport includes physical exertion, like lifting or running or whatever, then you would not categorize esports as a sport. But if your definition would happen to be required skill, requires training, requires professional leagues and teams, then you would say esports is a sport. So I hate that we even have to get into that debate. So I love the, the term competitive gaming. And I would say that people question would other people, you know, watch other people play video games. I say not, not only do we watch other people play sports, we watch people cook. <laughs> we watch people <laughs> sew clothes and put them on mannequins, right? We watch people sing. What we do naturally as humans is we love to watch the best people in the world do what they do best. And the reason why outsiders are confused about why video gamers watch other people play video games is because they don't see the intricacies of it. If I watch a video game and somebody who doesn't play video games watches a video game, it's a different experience because I'm seeing things that the pro gamer is doing that I I wish I could do, or I can tell what's exceptional. Someone without the trained eye and the experience can't tell. They just see somebody playing video games on there. In the same way that if I'm watching Gordon Ramsay cook, I cook a little bit to keep myself alive, you know, but I'm no chef. Like I watch Gordon Ramsay because it's fun to watch him yell at people, but I'm not watching him because I'm impressed with his knowledge and ability to combine flavors because I don't know the first thing about that. Okay, so beyond changing the name to competitive gaming, how do you plan to put your touch on the esports world? Yeah, you know, this is something that I'm really passionate about and I'm really excited about. And I would say a lot of the credit goes to PRG because they have the resources, they have the capabilities and the know-how to that I can now leverage through my experience. And so my mission at PRG and how I see putting my mark in esports is really revolutionizing and innovating the fan experience. And what I mean by that is when you look at where esports has come from and where it is now, it's very impressive. And so I'm not criticizing anybody for where esports is now, but sometimes when you've come so far, there can be a tendency to be satisfied and content with how far you've come. And so when I see PRG's capabilities, when I see 200 different patents on event technologies, you know, XR stages, mixed reality, all sorts of things, I'm excited about how we can make esports events better for fans, more engaging, drawing attendance, driving more viewership, how we can make it more fun for players who are going to feel like rock stars when they're on that stage. They have these unbelievable experiences being the center of entertainment that's like nothing else. And then also, most importantly, for revenue in the this space, making it a great place for sponsors that are going to have fantastic 
fantastic integration that are engaging and effective and that more dollars will come in to fund the space to enable us to do more of what we love. Well, there was a path pivot there for you from skateboarding into esports. How did that happen? If I believed in chances, I would say it it was by chance. (laughs) What happened there was I was at an agency called the Marketing Arm. The Marketing Arm is a global agency. They have, I think, nine locations around the globe. Formerly the agency record for AT&T. They're now one of the agencies on the the U.S. Army account, which is huge. They work with Doritos, Pepsi, et cetera, a lot of big brands. And I was a producer in their content studio. So I was producing live action. Um, I was doing campaigns. The one I was most proud of was the AT&T fandom with Jordan Spieth. Just a lot of amazing projects to work on and a great place to work. At the time, GameStop was a client of the marketing arm. The way it works at agencies, anytime there's a new ask from a client, they need a new capability or a new role, they look inside the agency first because they've already hired those people. It's a lot more effective than trying to hire a new person. And so they came to me, somebody recommended me and said, John, we'd love to have you on the GameStop team. And I said, that's great. So I interviewed with GameStop. I interviewed with the agency team and I got hired on to lead partnerships, non-endemic partnerships or, you know, partnerships for brands outside of gaming, like a Doritos, Papa John's, Red Bull, things like that. So the way my role was set up, I was embedded at, I was at GameStop headquarters four days out of the week, and I was at the agency one day of the week. Well, that's a really tough situation for both sides. The agency doesn't have their employee for four days a week, and the brand has this guy missing one day a week, you know? So it's like, don't schedule a meeting for John on Fridays (laughs) or something like that. Well, three weeks in, GameStop went to my agency and they said, we'd like to hire John on on full-time if you're okay with that. And they said, sure, we'd love to get rid of him. And so I was brought on to the the client side, the brand side at GameStop. And my first day meeting with my new boss, she said, John, I want you to figure out esports for us. And that was really, you know, I've had a number of moments throughout my career and throughout my life where it's like this fork in the road or it's this opportunity or it's this launch pad. And that was a huge one. And I said, all right, great. I'd love to take this on and learn how to enable a physical retailer to engage the community effectively, but also to monetize effectively in the esports space. It was so cool because in the esports ecosystem, GameStop does not really have a competitor um, as a physical retailer. It's a partner. It's a connector with everybody. It connects the publisher. It connects the team. We sell the products, right? The, the games, the peripherals, all those things. So I was able to talk to so many more people than I would have been able to if I was at a team, for instance, or if I was at a league. I got to talk to everybody and everybody wanted to talk to me because they thought, I had a lot of money to spend, which at first we did not. We we did get budget allocated eventually, but I can't tell you how many pitches I got. And I was thinking, boy, you guys have no idea that I've gotten far fewer dollars than you think. But it, it is, I'm so thankful for that time because it enabled me to kind of procure a very unique perspective of the space and to also gain a lot of really good relationships with people who are, are not just colleagues in the esports space, but have turned out to be really good friends. That was the moment where I pivoted and it's really... I'm very thankful for it. It's helped me a lot. Well, what advice would you give someone trying to follow their passion or make their passion into a profession? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, kind of an overarching advice that I give young people, I really like to encourage young people to pursue a business education, even if that's not formal. You know, um, I'm very glad that I went to college. I went to Sacramento State University and I got a great education. I learned far more than I thought I would. But, you know, college isn't for everybody. So even if it's, you know, a mentorship or something less formal, business will enable you, an understanding of business will enable you 
to understand how to make money doing what you love or how to identify that what you love doesn't make money and so you don't waste your time and energy trying to go into business doing that. One example I would say is, you know, everybody knows I'm a skateboarder and I love business. They say, John, when are you going to open your own skate shop? And I say, I will open my own skate shop when I have enough money to be able to afford to lose money opening the skate shop because <laughs> they don't make any money. <laughs> and hopefully one day I, I can achieve that dream. But in addition to the business education, what I would also say is volunteer, you know, especially in the esports space, like connect with local teams, with local leagues, find these opportunities. And guess what? They need help. You know, I always say people hire their friends. The reason why there's laws against people hiring their friends is because people do it. <laughs> and guess what? <laughs> it happens anyway. So the best thing that you can do is connect with people. You know, let them know you're cool. A lot of business comes down to, are you cool to hang out with, right? I mean, at a certain level, everybody's talented, everyone's experienced. But if you and I have to hang out in a room for a couple of days to, to meet a deadline, or if we have to go on a trip, or if we have a partnership and it's going sideways, you know, are you somebody who I can work with? Or are you going somebody who I can't stand is going to blow up and go off on? Gaining those relationships, you know, showing that you're somebody who fits in with the culture. And then as the more experience you gain, once you're able to get a job, you're going to do a better job managing things and managing people if you've done that task or that job yourself. To simplify that, I would say volunteer, make friends and pursue opportunities. Well, thanks, John, for stopping by the green room. Is there anything that you can, you know, kind of tell us that's coming up in your industry that we should be aware of? Yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, there's a number of things I have in the works that are under NDA. I'll be able to hope share a little later. But one thing I would love people to follow um, and participate in is the Esports Trade Association. I have the opportunity to be the, the president of the board over there. And we had our inaugural conference scheduled for April 6th and 7th in Chicago. And of course, that got canceled. So we have uh, rescheduled it for September 21st and 22nd in Chicago. Of course, that's assuming that we're all going to be safe traveling and everything. If not, we'll reschedule again. But we wanted to put a you know, those dates on the calendar so people can plan and work around that. The Esports Trade Association, what we're doing, we're bringing together the gaming industry with complementary experts, people from outside of the space to help improve the business practices of the esports industry to enable us to do more of what we love. Please follow us, look up Esports Trade Association on any social or esportsta.org online, and we would love to have you join us. Hey, John, thanks again for your time. And you can always catch more of John on his Twitter and and I'm going to let him tell you about that. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter um, at John Davidson, but it's zeros instead of O. So at J-0-H-N-D-A-V-I-D-S-0-N. In the Green Room, sponsored by SOS Global Express. Proudly supporting the frontline efforts throughout the COVID-19 pandemic.